The facts will fall where they fall. I don't think that we're going to suddenly see a significant drop off in the number of opened cases. Is the first week of March 2022, and welcome to episode 121 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, your host. Last week, the National Security Institute hosted Matthew Olson, Assistant Attorney General for the Department of Justice's National Security Division, for an announcement ending the Trump administration's China initiative and launching a new, broader initiative counteracting threats from a number of nation-state actors, including Russia, Iran, North Korea, and China. Today's episode will feature Megan Stiefel, NSI Visiting Fellow and former Director for Cyber Policy at the Department of Justice's National Security Division for a deeper dive on the DOJ announcement, as well as a discussion on concerns of cyber attacks playing a role in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Megan, we're watching the Russian invasion of Ukraine unfold before our eyes. Cyber attacks by Russia have been part of the invasion. We've seen denial of service attacks, wiper malware attacks. It's hard not to think, though, uh, that just like the physical invasion on the ground, that this part of the war has not gone as well for Russia as many people thought it would. What's your assessment of how Ukraine has fended off these cyber attacks? I would say, I mean... Who would have thought, right? But but actually, the IC knew, right? They told us, um, and we told the world. So um, we when we in partner nations. But I I would say uh, on the cyber piece of it, I, it's a mixed bag. Um, I think we're even in the past couple of days and, and hours, it, it, it's an ever shifting uh, situation. I think things certainly could have gone better, you know, beginning in the earliest phases where we saw uh, distributed denial of service attacks against, um, I think it was in the first case, the MFA and, and maybe MOD for Ukraine. I may have those targets off, uh, which doesn't kind of give one a, a strong sense of um, comfort or confidence. But as we've watched this progress over the past now, I guess it's been about almost two weeks since those incidents first began, the degree of involvement from a range of actors has really uh, grown. And I think that's given greater assistance for sure on, on the side of those uh, supporting Ukraine. So I know the U.S. has been very active for several years in providing assistance to Ukraine on cyber defense and, and related technologies. To the extent you can you can judge it at this point, would you say that that collaboration has been successful? I feel like I'm giving a lot of lawyerly answers, but mostly or in, for the most part. Um, and again, I would say if we think about kind of those those events that happened in, I guess it was about two weeks ago now on the, the websites of the governmental agencies, makes one wonder kind of if that wasn't defensible, what, what else is not defensible? Um, at the same time, though, when you think about the criticality of, of a public website, does it have more of a um, kind of a psychological um, in the sense of uh, trust in from citizen citizenry as opposed to being facilitating a critical capability for the government? So I think indications are um, mixed, but I would say I think, you know, the fact that the U.S. has in, has invested so much time, um, you know, we unfortunately we got it right in thinking about that this was not going to go away. This being Russian aggression towards Ukraine and the desire to use, you know, kind of the full scope of of operations uh, to achieve well, attempt to achieve its ends, 
by by the Russian Federation. I would hate to see what would have been like had we not done what we've done. Um, and I think, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, it's a model that we're going to have to repeat around the world in some cases. And so figuring out kind of what the where else we might need to deepen our capacity building and uh, integration and, and policy engagement is one that I hope the administration is, is thinking about because we can't take our eye off of this, uh, this meaning the tactics that, that Russia has uh, demonstrated in, in Ukraine, but we know that they are actively considering and undertaking to a lesser extent elsewhere in the world. We really might be talking about kind of a new form of U.S. foreign assistance here. Yes. Uh, I might say that I was hoping we would get to get here a few years ago, maybe might have agitated for that, but um, it, it's overall, I think we're, we're we as a global population have kind of been a bit slow, I would say, to, to think about the role that, that these interconnected technologies play in, in all of our lives, including in our ability to uh, support democracy through resilient systems. We, uh, we also haven't really seen major Russian attacks against the United States or any parts of our uh, private sector infrastructure as some thought might happen. Is there, is there a story here? We haven't yet. And that's what I hope we can say that, you know, down a few weeks and a few months from now. I don't have the inside scoop on whether there's a story here, but I think we, we do remember um, that this administration, portions of the prior administration, going back even to the administration before that, um, and I think a number of administrations have uh, talked about the need to shore up critical infrastructure from a range of actors. And steps have been taken through executive order, and in case, some cases, a small amount of legislation. But what we, I think, began to see and it's, I think would say it's it's really kind of been escalating is this what what DHS now calls the shields up effort to get out to industry to say, in particular in response to sanctions, but overall sanctions that the United States and, and partners and allies are imposing upon the Russian Federation, that they expect that, that Russia may use uh, malicious or malign uh, cyber activity as a response to those measures. So we've kind of taken a multi-pronged approach, not surprisingly, including working to, to shore up critical infrastructure, but also to be more explicit in outward um, in and, you know, I think this idea of shields up is one that can maybe is a little bit more digestible to to industry, and they might you know maybe you can get through to someone in the C suite to say, okay, this makes sense to me, as opposed to saying you know, some long drawn out technical description of why it is that some small you know muni electrical uh, operator in some small part of the United States needs to pay attention to this. So I would say kind of back similar to what we were talking about with respect to um, how effective measures have been in, in attempting to attack Ukraine. Similarly, I think we've made progress in this kind of collective action that we are seeing. You know, we're, we're beginning to see a number of, it's certainly a fog for sure, but a, a range of actors um, at, at play in, in protecting Ukraine. In the United States, I think we are seeing the, in some ways, maybe an outcome or an impact of, of the years of work that has been undertaken, there's still a long way to go. I, I'm not giving anyone may, just to be clear. Um, so Jamil, that's for you um, if you're listening. But um, if he were here, I, I'm sure he would jump all over it. But um, let's hope you know that, that we can, can be in this position a few weeks from now. And, and even if we are in this position, we should not be patting ourselves on the back and saying, right, we've got it all done. We're move on to some other thing, right? We need to really take lessons learned from this. Right. All right. Let's turn to the uh, issue with uh, the China Initiative and the Department of Justice. Uh, Assistant Attorney General Matt Olson just announced the shutdown of the so-called China Initiative. One of the primary criticisms against it was the mistaken prosecution of Chinese nationals with no connection to any crimes due to the DOJ's narrow focus on targeting Chinese practices and its nationals involved with it. Additionally, 
civil rights groups have come out against the initiative, stating that it discriminated against Chinese nationals and Asian Americans. How how frequent were the instances of these false convictions and racial discrimination? Are there notable cases that come to mind when looking at these concerns? It is. I, you know, I hadn't portraying there's lots going on in the world and, and among other things. Um, the biggest cases I think that, that I was familiar with and had heard of over the years, uh, most, and it's really been, so the, the initiative, the China initiative itself was kicked off in 2018. Um, and and as you noted, Matt Olson wound it down or announced its, its conclusion uh, last week. Uh, in 2020 and 2021, there were a number of uh, cases that had been dismissed against researchers at universities. Um, now, I will say we know that the Thousand Talents program, I think it's called, it, there are a number of tactics that that uh, China, the Communist Party, and the government there use to advance their uh, international objectives. So I feel like the record is a bit incomplete here. Um, and it's certainly one could see kind of both sides of the argument. I think the facts are what we would want DOJ to focus on, regardless of who uh, kind of the, the citizenship or, or other affiliations or associations of, a, of um, a suspected criminal. So, but I think it's the the possibility for, for and it sounds like the outcome of, of this kind of agenda was particularly uh, concerning and for the diaspora, so to speak. And, and, and you know, unfortunately, we know that that also happened in the case of our shift on terrorism, right? Um, that that we, we kind of swung too far in one direction, I think. And so it's, it's unfortunate that, that that's what kind of was the public perception of this initiative, rather than recognizing that there is a significant national security threat here uh, and being more uh, kind of probably deliberate in articulating um, the broader uh, actions at play behind these uh, some of these cases. But for me, anyways, it's the, it's the um, cases against a number of, of researchers. That I think the most um, well-known one at this point is the uh, professor at MIT. Uh, there was also a professor at UC Davis um, where the, the cases have been dismissed. And so you, and, and I think just for a bit more background, um, NSD, the National Security Division, was given the the task of of overseeing this uh, China initiative when uh, it sounds like the prior administration through, um, I think, largely under USTR and the Trade uh, Council kicked off the effort back in, in 2018. So NSD, because it's it's the, the national security arm of, of the Department of Justice, was given the task. Um, and when you can think about kind of what steps uh, or internal memoranda or kind of direction are being given now uh, with respect to the the timing and, and uh, practices and policy approaches to opening cases of these types in the future. So the vast majority of economic espionage and trade secret theft cases involve China. So does, does shutting down the China initiative really change anything that DOJ is already doing? I was going to say, I hope not, but that makes it sound like I have absolutely no sensitivity to, to being perceiving to be the kind of the, at the, at the far end of uh, the Department of Justice and, and the U.S. government's capabilities. But no, I think, and Matt, I think was much more articulate than I will be in saying this, but you have to follow the facts and the, uh, the law and you have to, you know, the objective here is to support the protect and protect the Constitution of the United States. Um, and so the facts will fall where they fall. I don't think that we're going to suddenly see a significant drop off in the number of opened cases. If we remember back a couple of weeks ago, FBI Director Ray gave his speech about, I think, was it every 12 hours or something that, that, that the FBI is opening an investigation with respect to tactics uh, and uh, intentions in violation of U.S. law undertaken uh, by members of or, or agents of the People's Republic of China. So, um, no, I don't think it's winding down, but I think we are being perhaps maybe they're being a bit more deliberate, as I say, about clearly articulating uh, 
and satisfying all the requirements in the what used to be called the um, U.S. Attorney's Manual now has a name that I can never remember. So in September of last year, uh, the State Department announced that it had plans to expand its China operations to include more regional watch officers to track Beijing's activities worldwide, including actions on uh, related to military modernization. Do you think DOJ shutting down the China initiative will influence the State Department to shut down what it calls its China house? No. Uh, maybe, would we consider kind of changing the, the optics and the name around some of these activities? And I don't mean to sound at all, again, it's not an absence of sensitivity or to sound like a um, a hawk per se, but I think all these initiatives, my sense of things is uh, from my background and experience, and I imagine you might say similarly, they are, were in, in, a, in, their in, in their initiation based on fact. And so um, the fact that we need to continue to have uh, representation and focus from across the, the government on the motivations, um, the tactics, and the direction of the CCP is a fact. So uh, I wouldn't expect that, that, and I would hope that they, whether they choose to be, again, a bit more sensitive in the way they describe these things, perhaps, but no, I wouldn't expect that we would see any change. In fact, I think we may see uh, a heightened effort, but a more uh, targeted and and articulate basis. One of the things that uh, DOJ announced when it said it was shutting down the China initiative was that it was going to replace it with a more holistic whole of government approach against non-state actors. Matt Olson said that the strategy would involve cooperation between the public and private sectors to engage against these nation state actors. What do you think this public-private partnership is going to look like? Well, in some ways, it's an extension of, of what we also saw talked about in the beginning of, of the, I think, a greater recognition and therefore willingness by both public and private sector actors to to recognize the critical dependencies we have on each other. But in particular, you know, the government has on the private sector, which we know that the statistic, I think we all sort of question whether it's really 85 uh, percent, but but we kind of routine, routinely cite as a talking point that the private sector owns 85% of uh, the information and communications technologies that we rely on, we the government and we, uh, we the people. So with respect to public-private partnership, as I say, I think it will be an extension, but I'm hopeful that it would be, well, I think the government would do well to really, and I, I had heard that this happened uh, back a few years ago in the counterterrorism space, but we, I think the government would, would do well to recruit some kind of Madison Avenue um, in its campaigns. And this one is one that I would love to see them really put some branding and deep thought around. Um, because we know that that despite the government's efforts to be in this, this greater dialogue, including potentially uh, declassifying or sharing or clearing more people in the private sector to know kind of what the risk is that they face, um, we're still at pretty significant risk. So the idea of both maintaining secure networks, but also building more secure products is one that we're still uh, not ahead of. <laughs> it's a game where we're, we're, not, we're not ahead of the game yet. Um, so I think that we may see more, uh, a greater number of people being cleared. I would expect uh, greater outreach. Um, and I think, you know, I hope that the, the, the campaign is, is not unlike um, portions of the, when we look at the China initiative, what's available publicly is there were, among other things, identified a number of U.S. attorney's offices who were participating in the initiative which I think reflects a decision that those were, uh, you know, there was a calculus about where some of the, the focus of, of uh, Chinese engagement and, and manipulative, manipulative activities in the United States were. So I would hope that we would be take a targeted approach, um, but 
among all, amongst other things, have it be um, not your traditional FBI briefing. I think we really need to meet people and approach them in a language that they will understand. Let me ask about a kind of a related challenge. China is very close to North Korea, of course. Some, like myself, might argue that... Uh, you know, without China, we really wouldn't have a North Korea problem. But but given their close relationship and uh, on, on a number of technical issues, what's what's the potential impact of this shift in policy on our efforts to contain North Korea in the cyber realm and other related areas? I would say that the, the winding down of the China initiative itself does not suggest necessarily a policy change. Rather, I think it's more about branding, which again, I'm going to come off sounding like a real insensitive person, I guess, at the end of this this uh, episode. But um, so I would expect there to continue to be uh, a whole of government approach to managing the risks posed by China and um, the other nations that we frequently put in the, the category of um, the greatest threats, Iran, North Korea, Russia. Um, and in some ways, perhaps it's a greater opportunity to to expand the aperture of of the, the whole of government approach to combat um, the activities, not only of, of China, but as, as you maybe didn't quite say, it's puppet North Korea. But um, <laughs> um, we also know, though, yes, there is a significant tie between uh, China and North Korea, but it is not. Um, I think there's there's a degree of, of information that suggests that they are operating perhaps with the protection of Chinese uh, of, of China, but from elsewhere, not only uh, they, the North Koreans, uh, when they're conducting their their crypto mining um, and those types of activities, they're operating not only out of China, but, but a few other places, also less friendly nations. And so um, I would expect that, that, and yeah, I would expect that we would see some additional uh, tools being used to counter, um, to counter some of those other regimes as well. And that's the, the, I think the direction that, that um, the National Security Division was trying to articulate and illustrate was just to say many of the tactics that we need to deploy to combat authoritarian regimes are not just limited to combating China. It's, it is a number of other states that we need to really keep our focus on. So, Megan, let's kind of go back to the, you know, where we started with Ukraine. I think uh, I'm wondering your, about, about your thoughts about the impact on Department of Justice, National Security Division in particular. But just broadly speaking, I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine, so brazen and so um, in your face and so much of a surprise to a lot of policy experts, those of us in the, you know, kind of inside the beltway swamp, mind meld on policy things had all kind of been thinking, we really need to focus on China. China's the the real long-term threat to the United States in the national security sector. It's our primary economic competitor. We need to, yes, there's these other issues that are important, but we really need to keep the eye on the ball with China. This invasion of Ukraine has kind of thrown that all up in the air, at least for, for a lot of us. And, and I think there's a lot of rethinking going on. Do you, do you see something similar happening at the Department of Justice that they're, you know, maybe their focus is, is going to shift because of, of the events we've seen in the last week? I would say I don't think it will shift per se as it will broaden. So I think I would hope and I, and I do expect that there would not be, as I said a couple of minutes ago, a, a kind of drawdown of the resources, whether it's in Department of Justice or elsewhere across the government being um, uh, put towards the risk and the threats posed by the CCP, but that however unsuccessful this effort by Russia ends up, 
and let's hope that it's entirely unsuccessful, personal opinion. Um, the tactics, as we all know, Ukraine is their testing ground, their proving ground. So back to the, the point we were talking about a couple of, more than a couple of minutes ago, we, the people of the United States, we, uh, former government folks, we hope that the government itself, the, our friends and um, who are still in, uh, in, so to speak, are taking a broad view of, of where um, we're kind of the next phase of this uh, effort that Putin has initiated, um, assuming that he stays in office. I mean, the, the way things are going, who knows? Um, but reality is, I think it's probably likely. Um, and so that, again, the U.S., you know, I think sometimes there's a, a bit of um, uh, delay in recognizing and thinking about what else the government, what other resources and, and authorities the government can use uh, to combat this type of these types of activities. And so I would hope that as they don't draw down, but kind of become more focused in some ways against um, the people's, you know, the CCP, that we again also think about, okay, we've, we've used the, the perhaps additional tools in, the, in that uh, effort. We need to think about using them against other um, nation states. And I think that's a kind of going back to, to Matt's, uh, to A.A.G. Olson's new strategy is to say, we need to think quite broadly, uh, not only using the authorities of the Department of Justice, but uh, across the government to to combat these. And Megan, if you were, we'll make this the exit question. If you were, if you were at this Madison Avenue advertising agency that you talked about earlier, what what would be the what, what would be the thing you would be trying to communicate to the American people? And and is there some particular segment of American society that you think needs to to hear that message in particular? Um, so I, I really think that there are two audiences here. Um, the first one, I think, because it, who moves the market? Is it consumers or is it kind of the C-suite leadership? But those are the two audiences that I think need to be kept in mind as we're thinking about, as the government is thinking about kind of the new world order of, of everything being even more dependent upon interconnected uh, technologies. So um, it's not to say that, you know, and I would I would not expect and I would not hope that, that it would, it would um, be a message of any of the types that we've seen, including what happened, you know, kind of post 9-11, we mentioned there was an unfortunate reaction to um, communities that in that case, we saw it now with it happened with post COVID, there were unfortunate actions undertaken against uh, member individuals of Chinese descent. Um, you know, can't put everyone in the same box. So I, I would expect that the, uh, or I would hope that the 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 brand branding approach is one of, this is where if Jamil were here, he would go crazy on me, sort of empowerment, right? Um, we we want, um, but we need to, to, and I, so I'm not necessarily thinking that we need to, that the government's kind of communication strategy needs to necessarily totally be an overt one, but to have pretty direct conversation, potentially in some closed door settings to say, we're all on the same side of this and we need you to help us and we we can therefore help you, right? You can't, it's harder to sell uh, US goods and services in markets that are totally destabilized. It was a long response to say, it's one I think of, of we probably do need to, to, you know, we had to, to teach folks about the, the the negative consequences of smoking. So it's not to say that we want people to put down their iPhones, but to be a bit more um, thoughtful in the way that they use them. And that goes then back to what types of products are U.S. companies building? Are they building a secure product and bringing to market a secure product as possible? Are they maintaining their networks in a secure manner as possible? Um, or are they just kind of hoping, winging a prayer that, that things will just continue the way that they are? We clearly can see today that never trust the status quo. <laughs> Amen. Megan, thanks for being with us today. That was great. Thanks for having me. 
That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. 